Twice Told Tales is a podcast about life and literature in the early modern period. I'm Leah Astbury, historian of medicine. And I'm Emma Clawson, and I work on French literature and thought. We're both researchers at the University of Cambridge. We decided during the pandemic to record some of the conversations we were having about our work as a podcast. In the 16th and 17th centuries, people were as interested as they are now in how to live a good life. It was a time of plague, poverty and daily hardship, but still people aspired to live well in an age before wellness. We talk about what makes a good life, then and now, looking at poetry, philosophy, medical texts, diaries and more. In each episode, we will be looking at a particular theme and bringing a text or example from our research to discuss that reflects something interesting about the early modern good life. Emma, what has made you think of the good life this week? Really nothing, because I've been having a very boring week. But today I read an article in The Guardian um, about people reporting that their periods have been going absolutely haywire in lockdown and I thought that was very interesting about the kind of good life or the not good life that is available at the moment while we're in lockdown. People are reporting that their periods are fluctuating in the sense that they are heavier or worse or more emotionally difficult or on the other end of the scale like not happening or being really much more irregular. Is this because of stress like different diets during lockdown? I think that they don't really know what the actual cause is, but yeah, it's a number of things like change lifestyle, maybe being able to pay more attention to your cycle without external interruptions or distractions. Yeah, that makes sense, right? That like, and I guess we're all paranoid about all kinds of bodily signs right now. So maybe we're just keeping a track of these things better. Yeah, I think that could be the case. Again, anecdotally, uh, several friends have said to me that they feel more aware of their bodies and their diet and exercise and all these kinds of things that can get a little bit stressful as well. It's super interesting in the context of history because I think in the period that I work on, women are often recording when they menstruate as a kind of general barometer of health. And I guess in the past, people are using diaries, almanacs, written forms to keep track of these things. But of course, now we have the rise of period apps and ovulation trackers and things like that. I've had those recommended to me many times, but I am just a too chaotic person to remember to pay attention <laughs> to remember to to log your symptoms yeah yeah I think the problem for me is I maybe get a bit too into it and then it's easy to explain everything and I think I get more angry if I feel <laughs> upset or angry or emotional or something and then I look at my period tracking app and I realize that it's around about that time of the month that makes me more frustrated yeah because there's nothing you can do and I guess also I maybe we should say that there are concerns about what's being done with that data right yeah um so what's made you think about the good life this week well it has been hard to live one's goodest life at the moment in lockdown and particularly one's goodest bodily life when you can't really go outside and there is no sun and there are no gyms and no pools however I have been feeling recently as if I have very poor posture and that that has been contributing to my foul miserable mood and so in um typical millennial fashion I found uh something recommended on the internet which is like a little back brace that makes you sit up straight all the time and I will say that it works it makes me sit up straight but it is horrendously uncomfortable oh dear yeah so bad life now for a good life later 
yeah exactly which is a pretty good theme for today to be honest <laughs> yeah no pain no gain yeah so I'm hoping that this is going to lead to a better life long term particularly a better sort of professional life however that is yet to be seen it's like a more comfortable life while you're sitting at your desk a more comfortable life yeah absolutely So today we're going to be discussing having a good body in the early modern period, having a healthy body, a comfortable body. The way people think about the body in relation to the good life, so kind of the good life and the body or the good life of the body. Mm -hmm. So it's both about perfectibility and a better body, but also just about the body in a more neutral sense. Yeah. And you come at this in part don't you from a really medical perspective so people are learning how to have better bodies or how to manage bodily care in different ways in this period aren't they yeah and rethinking what it means to have a healthy body so people are probably familiar with the idea of the four humors I feel like most people learn that at school particularly when they're learning Shakespeare and these are kind of four substances in the body that need to be balanced in order for you to be healthy and in the kind of excerpt I'm going to talk about later, that's really dominant. But people are obsessed with their bodies in England in the 17th century and obsessed with the health of their bodies. For example, Samuel Pepys, who's a you know well-known naughty boy of the 17th century. He's a naval officer and a merchant. And he writes in his diary 500 times about his health over the 10 years that he's writing and I think for many people, observing the state of one's body and one's health becomes a kind of a, an act of devotion as well, that it's linked to kind of your morality. And if you're a good Christian, you're taking care of your body and doing everything within your power to ensure that you stay healthy. So I think this sort of leads to a kind of a literal navel gazing in some cases where people are so attentive to their own health and they're doing this in their diaries and in account books in letters you know there's a huge amount of correspondence about health doctors also do consultations through letters so there's actually a, such an enormous amount of material on health and the body in this period in particular this makes me wonder when you say that people refer to their health or like Samuel Pepys refers to his health, is he saying things like, I feel well today, I don't feel too well? Is it quite general or is it really specific? Like I've got a really painful toe. Yeah, so it's a combination of both that if he's got a cold, he updates, you know, on the status of his cold or yes, something like a, a bad toe. But it might just be, you know, feel well today. People are very keen on documenting their sleep as well. They've had a good night's sleep, when they went to sleep, when they got up. So I think it ranges both from specific to sort of more general health. Do you think that changes over the longer period that we're thinking about? I work on a slightly earlier period than you, I think, in general, the, the 16th century, kind of the age of the Tudors, although I work on France and maybe going into a, like the beginning of the 17th century, so earlier than Samuel Pepys. So would you say that, that there's a kind of increased interest in health across that longer time scale? I think so because with the sort of advent of the printing press and the ways in which printing books becomes cheaper and becomes more accessible, more people are literate, so more people are reading these medical texts that have been translated from Latin and Greek into spoken vernacular languages. So I think there's more knowledge circulating and more of an interest in health more generally. So yeah, I would say that 
And I think particularly towards the end of the period that I work on, the end of the 17th century, beginning of the 18th century, medicine starts to be systematized by the state, hospitals in England, but also the, the state has a real interest in kind of increasing the health of citizens and the beginning of kind of mass marketed drugs um, towards the end of my period. Mass so, marketed drugs already? Well, mass marketed is perhaps too strong of a word, but proprietary drugs. Yeah, like drugs with a brand name that you buy. Because earlier on, there's the word hospital, but a hospital, is, and a hospital is where sick people go, but not necessarily to be cured, just to be tidied away and cared for in a different kind of way. And then they die or they get better but it's a bit random which outcome occurs. Maybe it's determined a bit by wealth, but... Yeah, I mean, I think in France and in other parts of Europe, there are hospitals from a much earlier period, and there are hospitals in England, but I guess what I'm referring to is coming from my work on pregnancy and childbirth, lying in hospitals, which is where you go to give birth, become much more common, and also foundling hospitals for infants that are abandoned. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of an anachronistic comparison, but I think hospitals in the earlier period that I work on in France are a bit more like workhouses or like homeless shelters they're not conceived of in those terms but I think that's more how hospitals work in the earlier period I get the impression from what you're saying that there's a kind of optimism about a good life with the body in the material you look at I think that's right yeah absolutely it's challenging my assumptions because I kind of imagine the body in the French sources I work on as a problem or something to be overcome or ignored I mean not exclusively I think there is also a lot of joy and I wonder how much changing religious practices come into that because I'm working on a predominantly Catholic culture that has a tradition of mortification of the flesh and flagellation but there's also you know feast days and joyous relationship with food so it's complicated but in general I have got used to thinking of people finding their bodies quite difficult. Well, this is a really interesting question and I think particularly methodologically as a historian of medicine in a period in which of course, the mortality rate is much higher. People are experiencing sickness on a much sort of greater scale. It's more dominant part of everyday life. However, they don't have that hindsight that we do. We have the hindsight of thinking, oh, we live in a healthier age. They lived in a time in which they were constantly unhealthy. And I'm not sure that's quite the way that they would have thought about it. And I think you're absolutely right that there is an optimism. And a lot of that comes from this sort of humoral framework, which says that anything even very serious all the way to minor ailments are often just caused by this imbalance in the humans and so therefore can be fixed with food with a different environment with a different attitude even you know if the emotions are a huge part of health and in that sense I guess there is more of a maybe not an optimism but more of a sort of a flexibility and if one isn't cured of one's disease either one is left disabled or one dies then it's also divine will and so people express resignation to that fate and certainly family members express that as well that heartbreakingly sometimes you know, parents die or say I'm glad that my daughter has gone to heaven removed from this evil wicked world I imagine that there are many times in which people were desperately upset or troubled by illness or death however there's a framework to see that as part of salvation as a kind of a divine lesson, even a challenge that one overcomes and will lead to bigger and better things. It can be seen as a test. Yeah, and this has me wondering as well, is, is it possible to have a good life with a kind of quote unquote bad body? As in, is there a good life for the unwell or the physically constrained? 
um, I can think of a couple of examples from the French literature that I work on where, I mean, this is a character and a real historical person who I'm going to talk about a lot in this series. But, you know, the essayist Michel de Montaigne, he's writing and he's really ill. He's got kidney stones that cause him intense pain because, you know, there's no anaesthetic in this period. So passing a kidney stone in the 16th century is not for the faint hearted. But I think he kind of incorporates his illness and his less good life into a different kind of ethos that enables him to appreciate his body and appreciate small physical pleasures and imagination and at the other end of the century and maybe indeed the scale this writer called Rabelais invents this series of stories about giants who have these really turbulent bodies well maybe not the main characters themselves but they also meet a lot of other characters who are this kind of out of control bizarre bodies that have fun and interesting symbolic potential so when the body isn't working the way you expect it to in those texts that's an opportunity as well a for a reflection on the good life and b maybe for another kind of good life and I don't think it's only metaphorical so I think that the metaphorical body is really important you know a key body metaphor is the body politic right so that the whole of the commonwealth or the populace is conceived of as a body and if things are going wrong politically, that's described in terms of an illness or maybe, you know, sometimes in quite a horrible way. They talk about cauterizing the wound, which means like removing an undesirable element from the body politic. But it's not only metaphorical in the kinds of writing that I'm just talking about, where you know, people are also thinking about what life is in a real body. Yeah, well, I mean, it makes me think of actually when people give birth, there's a sense in medical texts and doctors often have this idea that after a month, if you sort of bled away the remnants of pregnancy then humorally you have returned to yourself and you are well again and life is good except quite obviously life is not always good after you give birth for a variety of reasons and external injuries can be deeply troubling and difficult too and my sense is that women writing in their diaries often struggle with this discrepancy that go and see medical practitioners this discrepancy between expecting to be well and then not really feeling well being technically healthy technically having a good life body but not really living a good life and I think that is one of the difficulties with a framework that also sees things just in humours, but also how important moderation is for the body. I feel like that's a kind of a perennial theme that probably will come up across the podcast is that it's just so dominant in the text I read that one ought not to be too religious, too tall, too fat, too thin, too this, too that, not eat too much of one food. Moderation is just so dominant as a framework. Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, this idea of moderation in keeping the body in a certain state of balance seems to contrast in my mind with the violence and the martyr culture that we also see happening in the context of religious wars in this period. I think that that's something that people who aren't that familiar with the Renaissance or the early modern period are familiar with, you know, religious martyrs being burnt at the stake or political criminals, quote unquote, being publicly tortured and then killed. And that's so immoderate. <laughs> Yeah, there doesn't seem much moderation there. Absolutely. Yeah. But people are willing to put their bodies through these extreme trials. We're talking both about physical health and about mood and emotional and mental health and how linked they are. And I think they are also very linked in the early modern period, aren't they? But within this, there is this real theme of investigation, which is like, what is the difference between the mind and the body? How connected are they? Yeah. Where does the mind end and the body begin? Yeah, I should say that sometimes the mind is there's not really a stable word for the mind either <laughs> um you know it might be 
in French terms like l'esprit and l'âme, so like spirit and soul might be used instead of mind um, a lot of the time. Yeah, I feel like mind is not used very often in England either, it's brain. But this period leads us to having an idea of the mind as an entity, a really famous intervention in that debate was by the philosopher René Descartes in 17th century France, who provocatively stated that the mind and body are separate and the mind can therefore exist independently of the body. It's been really influential, called Cartesian dualism. The dualism is in there are the two things, the mind and the body. I mean, Descartes himself knew that it was really complicated. Later in the same work, he talks about how that actually, yes, they're separate, but they're also fused. You know, what does that mean? Later on in his work on emotion, the passions of the soul, he thinks again about how complex and interrelated the mind and body are. And he doesn't invent that problem either. I think one of the reasons he makes this big intervention on it is because it's something that's been preoccupying. I think philosophers and doctors. And probably clerics and religious authorities as well. Yeah, because it you know it pertains to like what is the soul, what can survive of the body, what does our mortality actually mean? Yeah. So, how important is the life of the body? <laughs> how necessary is it to the good life of the afterlife? You know, all these questions kind of hover around the mind-body relationship questions. Totally, and I imagine that that's sort of so central to your work using literary sources in terms of exploring what the mind means in relation to a body. A body is something that actually physically writes something but is meant to represent the mind and that kind of conflict of the two yeah a conflict and a symbiosis and in fact that that leads perfectly into the source that I wanted to talk about today which I think it reflects my work in the sense of being a bit more abstract it's not really about health but I think you could interpret it as kind of reflection on health and illness also so it's a poem by the writer Louise Labbé who was living and working in the city of Lyon in the mid-16th century. It's one of her sonnets. Is it unusual to have a female author in this period, a female poet? Sort of. I mean, women writers are in the minority, but she's not the only female poet. Is it, You know, she's one of the major canonical female poets of the period. She's increasingly on syllabuses. I mean, she writes a lot about being a female poet and that being unusual. And it certainly is unusual. And even when I was studying, you know, I didn't hear of her until I was a graduate student. <laughs> so she's relatively marginal, even though she's quite a famous woman poet. So what's the kind of the world that she's writing in? Like, what is 16th century Lyon like for a female poet? It is a real centre of literature and of trade. So it's a, it's a really important city in the book trade. So, so there's a lot of printers, there's a lot of books around. It's also in a good strategic location near the Alps, nearer to like Switzerland and Italy, and it's quite a wealthy city. So it's quite a good place to be a writer. And there are many writers in Lyon, and a distinct school of poetry emerges there around other like, male poets like um, Maurice Sèvres. And Louise Labbé's work really engages with that male coterie such that some critics speculate that, in fact, Louise Labbé is a nom de plume for one of these male poets experimenting with writing as a woman. Ah, 
Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's one a classic thing about most female authors in the past. But I think, you know, when you look at how upset people get about who Shakespeare really was, it's kind of generally a classic question that people ask. And I'm not sure really matters much in the context. Completely. We don't have definitive evidence either way as to who wrote these poems in a similar way to us not having that much evidence about many writers and you know the fact that Louise Levy gets targeted I think is a a function of her of her gender but it is is interesting to think about her as a kind of character and a poetic voice and as embedded in this network of poets um yeah I don't think it's that crucial to reading her what the gender of her actual physical body was or how she thought about that gender but she does write from a woman's perspective and I think that that matters yeah so you're going to read it. Um, are you going to read it in French first, maybe, and then in English? Yeah, shall I? Please, yeah. Okay, so I think it's her seventh sonnet, and it is about the relationship between the body and the soul. So, she writes, Envoie mourir toute chose animée, Lorque du corps l'âme s'utile part, Je suis le corps, toi la meilleure part, Où es-tu donc? Ô âme bien-aimée, ne me laissez par si longtemps pâmer, pour me sauver après viendrait trop tard. Las ne me pointe encore en ce hasard, rends-lui sa part et moitié estimée. Mais fais, ami, que ne soit dangereuse cette rencontre et revue amoureuse, l'accompagnant, non de sévérité, non de rigueur, mais de grâce aimable, qui doucement me rende ta beauté, jadis cruelle, à présent favorable. That's the French. You can hear that it's got, I didn't read it that poetically, but it's got a rhyme scheme. It's a 14 lines on it. And I've translated it roughly without the rhymes to get the general sense. So the poem says, Every animate thing must die when the subtle soul leaves the body. I am the body, you the better part. Where are you then, beloved soul? Don't leave me weakened here too long. Don't come back too late to save my life. Don't leave your body in danger. Return to it to your other part, to the beloved other half. But, my love, don't let our reunion be a dangerous one. Don't come back too harshly or severely, but with amiable grace that gently returns to me your beauty, which, once cruel, can now be kind. Gosh, you really get a sense of the separation between mind and body there. Yeah, I think it's interesting that they're figured as lovers. Yeah. Who can't live without each other. Yeah, what do you think of that? Well, I think it's interesting that she says, I am the body. She's known for really foregrounding and celebrating the body within the style of poetry that she writes. And on the one hand, it's kind of classic that women are associated more with the bodily. And in this case, it's identifiably a male lover and the male lover represents the soul. In some ways, that's quite traditional. On the other hand, a woman poet kind of vindicating the body and identifying as the body in a way that doesn't involve any kind of shame is quite interesting. The fact that they are figured as lovers, I think you can see that as reflective of how intertwined the mind and body are thought to be and how important it is that they are both okay. (laughs) And what of death here? I think death is threatened here, right? The body is dying. The body will die if the soul doesn't come back. So you can imagine that there's this comatose body (laughs) almost because in the French it's pamé, so it means swooning or fainted, that she's fainted. And imagine this this body is kind of on the threshold between life and death and needs to recover her consciousness. So there's a sense that life itself is totally precarious in the first part of the sonnet. But then what I also think is interesting is that 
she says, but don't come back too harshly. Right. There seems to be this sort of longing for a good life. Yeah. So firstly, it's longing for life at all. So please restore me to life. And then, but I want it to be a good life. I want it to be gentle. I don't want your beauty to be as cruel as it previously was. So it's longing full stop for for the lover and implicitly for the life giving force that that represents. But then it's make it good when you return. But I think it's also interesting that it hasn't happened yet, right? I think that's very much in the mode of this style of poem. It's a love sonnet and this style of sonnet is always about longing. It's always about the beloved being at a distance and being missed and there's no security that that person will return or that the love can be requited or consummated. So that's quite interesting for thinking about a good life in the sense that it's the object of longing. It's some kind of future phenomenon that you desire, but that isn't necessarily imminent. Um, This is maybe a bit of a historian question to ask, but do we know anything about the readership of this poem? I have to confess, I don't know that much about it. I mean, it's printed, you know, it's printed several times. It has a fairly wide audience. It's also clearly being read by the contemporaries you know there are poems in praise of Louise Lebe and her poetry and her status as this excellent woman that are often included in collections of her poems so she's got a kind of renown in her time. You mentioned that she really centres the body you know says I am the body I wondered is she particularly unusual for the way that she figures the mind body in relation to other kind of poets of the period and is there something particular you think about her being a woman in this particular text that's being centered to? Yeah I mean she addresses her poetry to Lyon women, Dame Lyonnaise. Although I think that the identity of the first person in the poems is quite fluid. I think that being a woman is a big part of her poetic project and thinking about what it is to be a woman writer. I mean, some of her other poems, her longer poems, reflect extensively on that theme. So yeah, that's really important for her. In terms of foregrounding the body in poetry, this kind of poem is called a Petrarchan sonnet after the Italian poet Francesco Petrarch, who wrote in the 14th century. I mean, I'm not a specialist on Italian poetry by any means, but I think the general impression is that Petrarchan poetry is about transcending the body. The body isn't foregrounded in the same way. Whereas in France, especially from the mid-1550s into the 1570s, the way that they receive this tradition is partly to make the body more central. And within that, I think, you know, Louise Labbé is a frontrunner. So for Labbé, there is a good life with a body. Yeah, definitely, in theory. You know, there is a sense that this poetic persona can already enjoy their body a bit. She's got this poem about falling asleep and it's kind of luxurious and then she can kind of drift off into dreams about the beloved and that's something that she can enjoy even when she can't actually be with her lover. But in general, because of the themes of longing and separation and disappointment that permeate this type of poetry, the good life of the body is another fantasy along with fantasies about reciprocal love and mutual understanding and happiness, I suppose. And I think it might be useful to think about the good life in those terms as one more fantasy that is intertwined with all these other kinds of fantasies that are expressed in poetry. And on that note, shall we talk about your source today? Yeah. I'm sharing a very topical excerpt today, which is on how to live through 
pestilence and it's part of a regimen and it's one of the earliest sort of English regimens and it's by a man called Thomas Eliot and he's an author of other texts including a humanist text about promoting education for women this one's called the castle of health and it's first published in 1536 and it becomes very very popular and it's essentially translating Greek and Latin texts into English so he hopes that physicians will be able to read it and have a better understanding of health but also eventually maybe everyday people can buy this so and he sort of promotes his text as being a resource that rather than resorting to a physician and paying lots of money people can buy his book they can do things every day to diagnose themselves and cure themselves remedy things quite significant ailments as well as sort of more everyday ones partly because of an understanding of health that is reliant on the four humors and illness as being the result of blockages etc um, can we just go through what the four humours are specifically and what they're supposed to do? So I know that there's choleric, bilious, sanguine and melancholic. And so we still have those words in our vocabulary now, but they mean something really specific in the early modern period. Yeah, and they refer to a temperament as well or a complexion. So they're each of the humours. So whichever is dominant means that you're more one or the other. Speaking of mind-body, so they are a mind-body phenomenon, aren't they? Yeah, so blood is warm and moist and equals a sanguine temperament yellow bile is warm and dry and is choleric temperament black bile cold and dry is melancholic and phlegm cold and moist phlegmatic right so they're all a kind of bodily substance or even like a bodily liquid and whichever one of them tends to dominate in your body more is, is the temperament that you tend to, but you're not supposed to be one of them in particular. Yeah, you're not meant to have too much. If you have too much phlegm, then you need to eat, say, for example, if you're that, that means you're cold and moist, right, then you have to eat lots of hot and dry things to kind of even you out. And are they gendered, these humours? So do you tend more to one or another, depending on what kind of body you might have? Yeah, so a sexed body and also an aged body so that you are hottest and wettest when you're born and you steadily dry out and cool down over life. That sounds quite good. <laughs> I think I would like to cool down and dry out. Yeah. Uh, women are cold and wet. Men are hot and dry. And there is a sense that one could potentially transition simply by changing one's body temperature and moisture level. Uh, so that, again, there's a flexibility, many scholars have argued, with sex in the early modern period. Oh, fascinating. So this theory is really influential on the castle of health. And that text in turn is really widely disseminated. I mean, I think the humoral theory in general is sort of pretty dominant in the time. It's not just Thomas Eliot. But even though he's kind of doing like the new and improved medicine for the everyday good life, it's still really reliant on this idea of the humours. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And he also perpetuates this other kind of complementary Galenic Hippocratic idea of the six non-naturals, which is six external factors that you use to influence your health and moderate your humours. They are firstly the air that you're breathing, what you eat and drink, how much you sleep, how much movement you're getting, um, so exercise, excretion, and finally, and perhaps most usefully for our discussion today, is the emotions or the passions of the soul. It's the sixth non-natural. And all of these things influence the flux of your humours in your body. Right, so all these factors feed into what you should do in a time of plague absolutely but actually interestingly 
when he comes down to it, those who are sanguine, who would normally have been seen as the healthiest, potentially that's harmful because it's you've got too much energy, too much moisture and heat to give to the sort of infection, as it were. Um, but I wondered whether first we could do a sort of a like a BuzzFeed style <laughs> quiz um, about, you know, what what is your humoral <laughs> complexion? I'm just so balanced and moderate, Leah. Maybe you don't even have a complexion. <laughs> I couldn't possibly say. Um, okay. So if you're sanguine, you're prone to being fat. They call it fleshiness. You've got large veins and arteries. You've got lots of hair and particularly redheads are often sanguine. Your face is sort of ruddy in your complexion. You sleep a lot. You have good dreams a lot, but you also dream of bloody and violent things. You've got really good digestion. You get angry quickly. You sweat a lot and your urine is, quote, red and gross, apparently. So if you're phlegmatic, you have very narrow veins, you have lots of hair, but it's very plain, so not red and not fiery. You sleep a lot. When you dream, you dream of things that are watery or fish-like. You're slow, (laughs) you're dull in learning, you're cowardly, your digestion is poor, it's weak, and your urine is thick, gross, white and pale. Okay, so if you're choleric, you're lean, so you'll tend to towards the thin side. Causativeness, that is, you frequently suffer from constipation. You've got black, dark hair or curly hair. Your skin is red as fire or sallow, so that's pale. Hot things, hot food and temperatures are really sort of irritating to you. You don't sleep much. You dream of fire or anger. You have a sharp wit and you're quick. You're hardy and you have a sharp voice. So if you're melancholic, this is, as you said, the famous one that writers supposedly often are. You're thin and you have a hard skin. You have, again, plain, thin hair. Your color is duskish or white with leanness. So I guess that's sort of gray, kind of. You're very fearful. And there's an early modern English term of watchfulness, which we've kind of lost a bit which means sort of being skittish or easily startled kind of anxious yeah kind of anxious yeah right you're stiff in opinion so you're sort of inflexible in your opinions your digestion is slow you're angry long fretting seldom laughing and your urine is watery so wait you want me to identify as one of these things they all sound terrible (laughs) they do all sound terrible yeah maybe maybe we'll just say that we're sanguine I just don't think I am sanguine also wasn't amazing it's clearly the best but it's still not great yeah I mean it's not as fun as like which Disney princess are you is it no I think that although I would quite like to exclude some of the qualities of it and I do not think I'm particularly slow I think I'd probably be phlegmatic do you think so yeah if I were to be one of them if you had to be one of them yeah that's the one when I was hearing it that I thought oh yeah that's probably what I would get diagnosed as if I were early modern what about you yeah I mean like obviously I'd love to be sanguine you sound really fun to be around however (laughs) do I dream of watery and fish-like things I'm not sure I do I think I have a lot of nightmares. What I find really fascinating about this, though, is the way that something that is very physical, which is you know, quite literally the makeup of the liquids within your body, and is determining things like your hair, your skin, all of those very bodily things are also fundamentally and inextricably linked to your personality and your emotions and your behavior. I think there is a sense in which, from reading this, that there is no separation here between mind and body. They are the same. The mind is also physical and bodily. But yeah, none of them are really the good life, are they? 
No, no. So that really illustrates why a balance of these humours is supposed to be the good life. Because you might want to take things from all of them. Yeah. So the extract that I've chosen about what to eat during the time of pestilence, I mentioned before sanguine, normally you're perceived to be healthier, not during times of plague. You're much more likely to get infected. And this is because you've got loads of heat and moisture to kind of fuel the infection. So generally, you're meant to abstain from anything that's going to increase the heat in your body or the moisture, which is going to give more sort of energy to the plague. In addition, you shouldn't do anything that's going to heat your body too much. So don't sit too close to the fire. Don't wear too many clothes. Cheese is out. We didn't get that memo when the pandemic started, did we? What? Cheese is out? Yeah, cheese is bad. Lettuce is okay, but only if it's mixed with cinnamon or mint. And my favorite thing is the cucumber, which classically is sort of something that is prescribed that cools the body. So in particular, is meant to lessen libido. That's okay, but only if you have wine with it. So if you eat things that are sort of cold and moist, like cucumbers, melons, fish, soft and fresh, or damsons, then you ought to drink wine and also eat it with salt to kind of temper it. So the moral of the story is that wine is very good for you as part of the good life. Well, I think we knew that. Is this for rich people then who can afford melons and cinnamon and all this fresh produce? So I guess it's for rich people in the sense that it's written. So only wealthy, educated, literate people are going to be able to read and also purchase this text. That's a really good question about different diets in this period because vegetables generally are sort of seen as potentially harmful but one imagines that that is what most people lower down the socioeconomic scale are eating a lot of the time meat is obviously going to be more expensive and I mean quite obviously if you're exceptionally poor then you're not going to have much choice over what you eat you know food is fuel rather than medicine as it's being used Mm. here also how likely are you to be able to get a melon in early modern England yeah that's a very good point in a much less climate heated world than today it's interesting there's this midwife who writes a text in the um, 18th century sort of observations on her practice and there's a really common theme in childbearing guides about cravings women craving certain things and that leading to birthmarks so if you crave strawberries that's classically where you get the strawberry birthmark and in this tale she tells about a woman who is very very poor and has been craving fresh green peas through her pregnancy and it's causing all kinds of problems she's maybe going into early labor and she's in lots of pain and bleeding and the midwife says to her you know is there something that you're craving and eventually she confesses yes I just can't stop thinking about green peas I'm thinking about them all the time and so as as her midwifery practice she goes and finds some peas and gives her the peas and immediately all of her symptoms go away but I guess that's a sign that food is understood to be medicinal for anybody on the social scale it's just whether or not you can access it and that might be part of one's medical care is going and getting some peas oh so interesting that writer I talked about before Montaigne he writes in his final chapter of the essays that he really likes melons he lists some of the foods that I don't have the list now some of the foods that he really likes to eat and particularly melons and I always thought that was charming and totally random but maybe there's some kind of medical historical context for that and also it does suggest that he could access them in France I'm just thinking that maybe in early modern England, it might be more difficult. And so maybe is this a translation or a kind of lifting of Mediterranean diet suggestion? Yeah, possibly. Um, from these classical thinkers that you mentioned that he's translating, like Galen and Hippocrates, they're ancient Greece and Rome, aren't they? Where you might have got more things like lettuce and, and melons more frequently. I think lettuce probably pretty easy to grow in England. Oh yeah, true, true. And spinach and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, I did wonder that. Although aren't watermelons sort of 
famously in a lot of Renaissance paintings and one fascinating to see how different watermelons looked in the early modern period. Yeah, if you're interested, Google Renaissance watermelon. Yeah, I, I will immediately as soon as we start recording. They've got many more seeds and lots of holes in them. So is this advice for any pestilence? Diseases aren't identified in the same way in this period. So it's not for what we now know as the bubonic plague, even though that's the plague that is tearing through cities and countries still in the early modern period. Yes, I think this is a classic question in medical history, which is that they often use the phrase plague or pestilence and they use it for all kinds of things. It's a similar thing with leprosy. That term is used to mean lots of different kinds of skin diseases. So it is highly likely here that when he's writing about the plague, he is referring to the bubonic plague. But I think it's just a sort of a general term for something that is infectious. And in particular, in this sense, is airborne, which, again, is very topical. Yes, definitely. So it could be something that involves fever and sneezing and that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, he hasn't sort of got a list of symptoms here. It's just how to stay healthy and how to avoid things. I mean, there's similar advice about when you're recovering from disease is to abstain from anything that is hot and moist, lest it gives the bad substance within you more energy. Has anyone tried, I mean, it's a kind of slightly twee experiment, isn't it? Has anyone tried to follow one of these regimens today to see what effect they have? Oh my gosh, that would be so much fun. I would love to do that. I don't think anyone's followed a regimen, but I know that there's a really big interest in historical reconstruction of recipes. The Recipes Project blog, for example, has done some of this, in particular making 17th century hot chocolate, which is like Mexican chocolate with spices and things like that. And I suppose if we did try it, we wouldn't necessarily come up with a conclusion about whether it did lead to a general good life of the body because it's so particular, isn't it? That's something that's really struck me about this is that it depends a lot on the individual. Yes. It's very tailored. I think it's not one size fits all, one treatment for all. Yeah, I think that's right, that it's about self-knowledge, understanding how your own body works and then catering to it. And within a domestic environment too, that I think it is helpful to remember that although, yes, of course, it would have been difficult maybe for people to get melons, to get peas. These are very achievable home remedies. And actually, the kind of remedy that you're going to get from a physician is potentially exactly the same as one you're going to get from somebody who isn't formally qualified you know hasn't gone to university and there are a huge number of medical practitioners which you know some historians call irregular but they're not really irregular they just don't have university degrees they're not physicians but they might be offering the same cures yeah so folk medicine or family medicine or all these kinds of things they aren't that different really to professional quote-unquote medicine maybe the differences are increasing no I think actually the opposite the differences are decreasing because increasingly people are able to read medical texts and make these remedies themselves and there's a real interest particularly in aristocratic families in kind of distilling and making medicines elixirs oneself and there's a budding culture of aristocratic women offering their medical knowledge as a kind of charity to their community. Interestingly, today, we haven't really talked about cosmetic ideas of a good or a beautiful body. And I know that that is something that is increasingly interesting to people towards the end of the 17th century, that recipe books contain kind of culinary and medicinal remedies, the ones that kind of people keep at home. Things like how to remove hair, how to brighten the skin how to remove pimples, that kind of thing, like makeup. 
you know, it really didn't occur to me that that could even have been part of this topic when we decided to do it. I just didn't, I just didn't think of it. But yeah, it's, it's true. When you even say good body is also about being appealing to others or maybe to oneself when one considers one's form. Yeah. And I guess the history of dress is like a huge topic that I think would be a bit too difficult for us to get into ah there's so much more we could talk about but I guess I will say that in this earlier period particularly in Protestant England the idea that you would do things to just beautify yourself is seen as terribly ungodly that one ought to wear very plain drab fabrics and not draw attention to one's visage or adorn oneself with kind of trinkets and baubles and that sort of thing oh yeah and that must come out of anti-catholicism as well I mean I just don't know if there's a different catholic worldview on trying to make oneself more beautiful physically if we have any listeners who know please write in that would be great to know um so Emma if you wanted someone who didn't know much about this topic to take away one thing from the discussion of having a body and its role in living a good happy healthy life what would you say I would say that people pay a lot of attention to that question in the early modern period and that the discussion of it is extremely diverse and not that shame-filled actually quite broad and open-minded in the things that I look at about what bodies are and what bodies can do I mean I'm sure there's a lot of negativity about people using their bodies wrongly or having the wrong kinds of body but I wouldn't want people to think that that is the only way that people talk about bodies in the early modern period because I think um good life of the body then was desirable and important to people what would you say I would say that there is remarkable continuity with people's interest in their own bodies and other people's bodies and seeking health and an ambiguity around what being healthy well-being is you know in this kind of time of wellness culture I think it's maybe surprising to read quite how long that's been at the forefront of our minds and and the difficulty with defining wellness and being well and the other thing, I think the major theme here is the ways in which having a healthy body interacts with religion and the moral kind of framework for that. We have a new morality around having a healthy body, but it is not one that is grounded anymore for most people in formal organized religion. I think wellness culture has its own sort of morality. Mm, like a kind of sublimated religion. Yeah, yeah. Eating clean I would also say on that note, actually, that something that I'd also want to emphasize here is that the good life is fantasy. As I mentioned before, that the good life of the body and all of its different entanglements with other kinds of good life is a projection. It's a fiction as much as it is something that people are actively um, trying to create for themselves in their ordinary lives. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Leah. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to Twice Told Tales. Written and presented by Leah Asprey and Emma Clawson and edited by Fiona Simon. If you want to get in touch, please email us at twicetoldtalespodcast at gmail.com and we're both on Twitter. 